Thank you so much for coming to check out the StashCast, where we have interesting conversations with interesting people. Focused on the world of commercial real estate and prop tech, the StashCast is brought to you by Needle. What if you could use data and analytics to predict which transactions were going to occur before anybody else? You can with Needle. Come check it out at Needle, N-E-D-L dot U-S to learn more. All right. Today, we have a very special episode. Uh, I have my friends and colleagues here from my capstone office, and we have just returned from the annual NMHC conference, the trek out to San Diego. And I just wanted to have a roundtable with these guys and talk about what we're hearing and saw out there for the couple of days where it was speed dating and make some predictions perhaps for what's ahead in 2024. We've got a couple of guys here. Maybe Sharif, do you want to start off, give an introduction to the people at home and tell them who you are, and then we'll go around. Of course, Sharif Gudem, director over Capstone. Been with the team for, say, going on about 10 years and been in commercial real estate for 10 years. Happy to be here. Happy New Year. Yeah. So I'm William Thurner. I'm also here on Capstone. So I'm on the brokerage side now. I've been with Capstone for going on three years, actually. So started on the analyst side and have moved over. They've let me get on the phones now. So I like the switch, but my, my perspective is always numbers first with a fixed income background. That's how I approach things. And I like to live in spreadsheets a little more than the other guys, probably. Wonderful. Just a little bit. My name is Jake. I'm the newest guy on the team here been about, I don't know, seven, eight months since I joined, fresh out of college. This was my first NMHC, so very exciting for me. Glad we can talk about it. Yeah, great. Thank you guys so much for joining. I'll just, I'll kick it off. What I felt this year was that just from a personal perspective, Sharif, I don't know about you, but the first year that we went, we were scrounging chairs in the hallway and shit, I hope we don't get caught thing. And this year is much more comfortable. It's more seeing old friends and guys and girls that we've been talking to for years at this point. Some of them we've done deals with, some of them we've gotten close. What were what was the overall feeling and sentiment from each of your perspective of this conference? I haven't been to a ton of these, but it was a lot it was refreshing that Midwest and the markets that we cover, because we sit in Cincinnati, are now comparatively prettiest girls at the dance because the Sun Belt and some deliveries and saturations, lagging rent growth and things. So it was fun to actually not have to necessarily start by saying, and this is why you should look at our markets. I really enjoyed that. And then the conference, people talk about it being a grind because you're just like, you're going out there, you're spending, there's a fixed cost to get out there with time and opportunity cost, everything. So you want to pack the days with as many meetings as possible. And we definitely did that. But it's nice. Most of what you hear is that everybody's looking for what everybody else is looking for. But just making sure that people like to do business with people that they like. I think sometimes when you're calling throughout the year, you can get into a pattern where every minute that you're on the phone with somebody is a minute that they'd rather be doing something else or getting back to their emails or something like that. But when you've got set time that's carved out, you can get into things, you can dig into, you can get in, get into deeper detail with people about what they're looking for in a way that is more difficult, not impossible, but more difficult on the phone. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. It's nice to be able to, you know, sometimes put a face and a name together 
and you really get to see who that person is on the other side of the phone that is normally, unless you're traveling to see them or you see them on a property tour, they're just a voice on the other side of a phone number. Yeah. So, And I think brokers, brokers by their nature are often pretty gregarious. And with that, it's sometimes you hear people say, smile while you're, while you're on the phone because they can tell on the other side of the line. But those are subtle nuances. But I think that just joking and personality, it's just way easier to do in person. It's not impossible to do it remotely, but it's just, it's so much different when you're in person. I enjoyed that. I also enjoyed digging down into kind of what people are looking for that's different because everybody says they want the same MSAs and they want 80s and newer and they want, they want what pretty much everybody else wants, but it's actually, it's fun when your ears perk up a little bit, when somebody says they're looking for affordable lie tech deals in tertiary markets. Oh, actually that's different. Tell me why you like that because we have a few of those a year and it'd be great if I could just give you a call and have a serious conversation about it. Yeah. Jake, why don't you actually, before we get into that, let's just give everybody like an overview. William, you touched on it, but what is the format of, of NMHC from the broker's perspective? I would say the format of NMHC from the broker's perspective is, you know, a few weeks leading up to it, get on the phones, start scheduling meetings with owners in your market. If you have the ability to start doing it from 8 or 8.30 in the morning, every half hour to 45 minutes, the groups that you have a rapport with or that you've closed deals with, take them out to lunch, spend maybe an hour and a half with them, and then get back into uh, the 30-minute, every 45-minute speed dating, you know, ending it with a dinner with a client. And for those who went out early, perhaps on Saturday or Sunday, doing a round of golf or some other kind of fun activity. But yeah, the format basically is... A lot of speed dating with, hey, what do you have coming to market? This is what we're looking for. And you just basically try to play matchmaker. Yeah, speed dating is the name of the game. And if you don't have a blue blazer and khaki or gray pants, you're not wearing the uniform. Yeah. So. Yeah. There's a dress code for sure. Yeah. <laughs> What's this loser doing? He's not wearing what everyone else is wearing. But even uh, I will say, Sharif, Sharif, that is that's your approach to scheduling meetings, and I think that there's a lot of validity to that. But stash, I don't know. I thought it was nice because um, it's almost like a full time job. It feels like coordinating these meetings and trying to find mutually agreeable times. Stash just putting using that software that basically allows people to schedule. You do have to be a little judicious and who you accept, obviously, and that can maybe rankle some people if you don't accept their meeting when they've requested it. But um, knowing the time is precious while you're out there, maybe it's something where you tell the juniors that they've got to go to this different meeting instead because you've got a higher priority client. Um, and I think people get that, but I do think that it helped fill up the schedule with good meetings. Um, just allowing people to follow a link in your signature and just get the ball rolling on what time are you available? Because there's four points of contact. It feels like when you're going back and forth, at least with email to find, do you want to meet? Where do you want to meet? What time works for you? etc. And it's you do that 50 times and all of a sudden it's that's a significant portion of the month leading up to NMHC. Yeah. yeah. And Capstone did does a great job with getting us a meeting space to to, to conduct our business in. And this year, yeah, to, I used to hate wrangling meetings. And I was just like, I'm going to use a Calendly this year. And I went out to my top groups, my 100, 300, and said, hey, I'm going to be at NMHC. Here's a link to my calendar. Let's find a time to get together. And 
I didn't have to do all that much as far as wrangling was concerned. So that was really nice from that perspective. I just set the times that I was available and the calendar filled itself. That was nice from that perspective. Yeah. The whole time I was there, I don't, none of the meetings felt like it was speed dating. Like that was a big worry of mine going in because it was my first one. I didn't really know what I was getting into. So I really thought it would be very transactional type meetings almost where there was no substance. You didn't really get to know anyone. And that's really why you want to get in front of people, at least for me, is to get to know someone a little bit better. But I feel like every meeting we had was, besides maybe one or two, were really great. And yeah, we talked a lot about real estate, but we also brought our personalities to the table. We have a lot of inside jokes at the office. We got to use some of those a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It was just very personable. That was probably the biggest surprise for me, that it really didn't feel like speed dating. I've never been to actual speed dating. Maybe Sharif or William has, but I I didn't feel that way at all. Sharif is on his way to speed dating. (laughs) I felt as a team this year that we really did probably the best job at capturing uh, the data behind what people are seeking. Jake, maybe if you could talk about a little bit of what we did this year and how we're going to try and put that to use. Yeah, I think what we were doing in the meetings was only one small part of it. That kind of controls everything else. So during the meetings, we were doing our survey where we just basically had a Google form or Microsoft form, whatever you want to use. And having those common questions and just rifling through them and getting people's buyers buyer criteria. So we can play that matchmaker game a little bit better, but that really all stems from the weeks leading up to it and the tools we built out before we even got to the meeting. So that, that survey isn't just something we can go back and look, Oh, manually look through and say, this guy wants, this guy wants this, let's match them together. But It's a little bit more sophisticated. William is great at making those tools through Excel and whatever else, what other software programs we have. And uh, yeah, I think just the weeks leading up to it, the strategy we had around utilizing those tools and reaching out to groups before going to NMHC was, I think we had... I don't know what the other brokers were doing, but I think we had a really good strategy leading up and hopefully the next couple months, you know, we see the fruits of our labor. Yeah. I do think it's it's worth mentioning that we did, technically we do have this framework because we need to be able to pull extracts and things out of that. We need to have like usable data, but we didn't just go down. It's like, next question, what do you think about this? So as things come up in our, in an organic um, conversation. Uh, people are telling you their buy criteria. People are telling you what they're interested, what they're not interested in. And I think that the name of the game, so many people are crushed with the amount of inquiries and they're just decisions. And there's so much content that they have to sift through on a day-to-day basis that just being able to make sure that you're very pre- precise and that a sniper's approach 
to what you put in front of them because they're judicious and they're jail. They guard their time and their, their capacity very jealously and rightfully. So making sure that you're putting the best possible opportunities in front of them is the best use of their time, which they appreciate and the best use of our time, which we certainly appreciate. When you go to NMHC, you do want to build a rapport. You want to build relationships, but you also want to have actionable takeaways that you can utilize for the rest of the year. And so I think that we made a very concerted effort this year to make sure that we weren't just rifling through pages of notes, trying to figure out what, what did he say about this? Does, does he like Indianapolis? Does he not? Is he open to lie tech? I'm not sure. So just having the framework where you can quickly drop in data and have it be actionable moving forward to make your database, your CRM, whatever it is that you utilize more precise when you do have opportunities that come to light or prospecting. That's the two twofold approach, relationship and then actionable takeaways. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, because the fatal flaw of previous years from my own experience has been, okay, you've got a yellow pad full of notes on every single meeting and you're very judicious about it. And then you get back and you're like, oh my God, first of all, I'm exhausted. Second of all, how do I navigate through this and make actionable things out of this. So I feel with our powers combined, we did a really great job of capturing that. And I think Jake maybe touched on it earlier. Matchmaking seems to be the theme of this year. Listings were light for everybody, but we have a ton in our back pocket. And so it's okay. How do we match? How do we match those groups that we know are ready, willing, and able and capable with the opportunities where they said, I'm interested in seeing an offer, but I don't necessarily want to bring it out for a full marketing process. So that's what we've got going on. Yeah. And I said, even when it came to that matchmaking, William touched on it briefly, but just seeing those outliers this year, I was surprised in previous years, you'd hear people say, oh, hey, we're looking for 80s and newer and just a year or two go by. And all of a sudden they're saying, oh, we're looking for 1990s or 2000 and newer. No, like a lot of the groups that had really been focusing on those C-class assets and compounding capital as they grew, maybe they took on a little more headaches than they expected. And they're just looking for a little less headaches and still looking for those groups. The ones who say, yes, we're not constrained by vintage. It's okay. We'll be able to bring a lot of deals to those groups or the ones, yeah, yeah, we're still interested in tertiary markets. It's okay. Like those outliers. I feel as though like they'll be able to get a lot of deal flow in their direction. Yeah. yeah, I've been thinking about that. I wonder how much of that is actually a shift in the marketplace as time goes by. Obviously, if you're looking at 30-year-old newer, then obviously over time, 30 years old is going to be 1990s and newer, um, whereas eight years ago, it was 80s and newer. So I wonder how much of it is that versus how much of it is that just people who are our legacy returning clients are just growing out of maybe the thing where they cut their teeth. As we grow with them and as we bring deals to them, they sell through us. We have this symbiotic relationship with them. I wonder how much of it is them transitioning their portfolio from the C-class entry-level workforce housing, where people make a ton of money and a lot of people stay there forever because they're exceptional operators. But I think that a decent amount of our clients have the long-term vision of moving, transitioning their portfolio from C-class to B-class to a lot of people want to stay there and not uh, be in the institutional core space. But yeah, I've been just ruminating on that. How much of it is just growing with clients 
Because if you're meeting with the same people, not the same people, but you're meeting, there's a lot of overlap from one year to the next. Some of it might just be that they're able to go after B class now. They're not constrained to 60 adore stuff. They're looking at 100 adore stuff. Yeah, I think most of it is probably people transitioning up in the world, so to speak. And then another part of the sentiment overall, I think, is just people coming into the Midwest for the first time and saying, there's not a whole lot of brand new product out there. Old to some of these guys is early 2000s, where old to us might be like 1950s or 60s. And I get why you don't want to go into the 1960s, but it's a different landscape out in Cincinnati in particular. Yeah, I I was struck by that, actually. There were a couple legacy Cincinnati owners who were talking about new construction, and then later it came out that they were talking about 90s and newer for new construction. And then you hear the groups who were trying to transition from Phoenix, Austin, Charlotte, Atlanta, and they're talking about entering the Midwest markets, looking for new construction, and their definition is like 2015 and newer. And so maybe even more than that, uh, it's just, it's such a different mindset. And I think it'll be interesting as we have new to market clients coming in to just shepherd them along the process of this is how we look at insurance. It's not 3000 a unit here. This is how we talk about debt. This is how we talk about vintage and maybe some of the headaches that you should anticipate on the front end when you're drafting LOIs and for this kind of vintage, because not everybody has done eighties deals. If you're exclusively operating in um, some of these places that <laughs> the the majority of the product that's out on the marketplace is newer than that. Yeah. What are some of the most surprising things that you guys heard or saw at this year's conference? Insurance was definitely a huge topic of conversation this year. Whereas last year it was like, what the heck's over the rate markets? Every single thing I had was like, oh my gosh, have you seen this? the rates markets and what they're doing, capital markets, crazy. So we had that conversation 85 times last year. And that's still obviously a topic of conversation. But now insurance is such a huge thing. And we, we've seen people, a lot of national operators who aren't self-insuring, maybe they've got a blanket policy and their weighted average is about, even in the Midwest markets, they were talking about eight to 900 bucks a unit is what they're underwriting. And that's just not what we've seen in terms of debt quotes or sorry insurance quotes that we've gotten from local brokers we've seen on trailing financials when we've underwritten deals insurance is certainly going up but that might just be another way that local brokers can be sources of value to set up i know you've got your insurance guy for national coverage but i also have an insurance guy you should probably talk to who's local here who could get you a lot better rate and that's just like a unique that's a unique thing that only people who are boots on the ground in the markets that you cover can really provide. Yeah. It used to be that insurance was dead nuts, 250 a unit. Like that was just gospel. And now it's like you were saying up to 800 for Midwestern markets. Since are you kidding me? And we're underwriting at 500 a unit now. And that seems high. Apparently Um, the Midwest has a lot of hurricanes also. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that was definitely something interesting. One of the things that I thought was interesting, and you see these group groups do this from time to time, but in the quest for yield, they're like, historically, they're like, we only look at big deals, 50 million and up. And now it's maybe if it's a hundred units and it's in a market that we're already in, we'll take a look at that. 
I thought that that was an interesting thing along the lines of different vintage and maybe tertiary markets, just the openness to the non-traditional types of assets that you would normally peg for any given group. Yeah, in that same vein, I think we had more groups sit down and talk about what portion of their funds allocation is for the Midwest this year versus in years past, where it's just when that same vein that we've been talking about, it's much more of a point of emphasis where it's not only do we want to, we will be mobilizing this much money into the marketplace, into your markets in the next X amount of years. We have heard that before, but we probably heard at least anecdotally three times as many groups were talking about the specific amount of allocation from their funds that they mm -hmm. want to put into the Midwest, with the bells of the ball being Columbus, Ohio, Indianapolis, and Kansas City got a lot too. We don't cover that as much, so we don't we didn't spend a lot of time talking about those, but Indian Cincinnati, or sorry, Indian Columbus were really the, the topics of conversation. People love the fundamentals of those two places. Yeah. And they're very similar cities from our perspective. Um, yeah. There's a, in the Venn diagram of people who want to own in Columbus, there's a lot of overlap with the people who want to own in India as well. Yeah. The biggest difference being obviously the state that they're in and then how taxes are handled. Yeah. So that's a black box. Yeah. I think one thing that shocked me, maybe it's just because I'm in Cincinnati all the time, but Cincinnati continues to be overlooked in some aspects where, like William said, Columbus and Indy are the head honchos really in the Midwest right now. But if you look at it, Cincinnati's probably, not probably, it is the hardest to develop out of those three MSAs. Supply constraints are great here and it's not really going to get any better. And then two, we have what, five Fortune 500 companies? So you always have the supply of humans, right? You, and not only just people, but pretty high paying people. Uh, so it, it did surprise me that Cincinnati was still a little bit overlooked along with, yeah, the insurance talk was outrageous. Hearing some of these guys that are in the Southeast talk about 3,000 a unit insurance is just mind boggling to me. Yeah. I don't even know how you make stuff work with that going on. Um, and also the coffee prices at the hotel was outrageous. <laughs> it was I, nuts. Yeah. I think it was $170 a gallon for coffee uh, <laughs> that outrageous. the hotel charged Capstone and all the other uh, participants. It was just highway robbery. <laughs> Get it while yeah, you can. Man. By the way, it's California's going to build that economy. Yeah. By the way, it's eight Fortune 500 companies. <laughs> there you Cincinnati. go. Uh, but I, I will say one thing I was I heard repeated, uh, not that I was thrilled about it, um, but the number of groups we met with that said, uh, we think we're going to be more active in uh, Q3 and Q4. There was still a heavy sentiment of, uh, we're either going to be sitting on the sidelines or just being um, continue being cautious for months. Yeah, as a broker, I, I really wanted to hear people say, hey, new year, new money, let's get after it and start being aggressive again. Uh, but yeah, I was perhaps not surprised, but just a little disappointed on how many groups. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, the second half of the year is when we're going to start getting more active.
Yeah, I'm going to have more conversations with people about that because I think as we see forward curves and we hear rhetoric, maybe not the most recent Fed meeting, but we hear people talking about rate cuts. And if you're trying to time the market, which it seems like a lot of people are, the time to start mobilizing, preparing for sale is before the rates bottom out. If you're waiting to list until the bottom of the the curve here, when you're in a, a, a rate valley, this is you're not maximizing you're not maximizing all the potential of any sort of increase in pricing that would result from a more competitive rate or higher coverage that'll be a topic of conversation moving forward here but we'll see if it, if this were residential that'd be great because you can rate lock a contract bam 30 days but that's not how it works in commercial so you got to get you got to be thinking 90 to 120 days ahead of time in terms of when you think rates are going to be at their lowest if you're trying to time the market. Yeah, that's right. Cause we don't live in a, we're not selling cars here. You can't walk off the lot with it today. It takes, it takes a little while to get that train rolling. One of the things that I heard that I thought was probably one of the most positive things to come out of it from buyer sentiment was the want and desire to have, what was it? Neutral leverage. So matching the cap rate with whatever the, the going in interest rate was, as long as they could achieve I think it was 6% cash on cash within year two tax adjusted, which I thought that was a ray of sunshine um, because it used to be, not used to be, but it was just unknown. And it seems like people are coming to their senses recently. So that was a positive thing. What sort of returns for the audience, what sort of returns are we hearing that the market is seeking or desiring, or at least what are they telling us? I heard a lot of people downplay IRR, and I think now it makes sense that sitting in 2024, after the huge rate spikes that, oh man, our exit cap got blown out of the water here. I understand why there'd be less emphasis on IRR, because that's so dependent upon your underwritten terminal cap rate. So cash on cash is really what people wanted to talk about the most, or yield on cost. But cash on cash, it seems obviously it's all risk dependent and is pretty much in lockstep with the vintage of assets that people are targeting. I heard a lot more for stuff that's pre-80s. I heard a lot more talk about by year two, they want to be at 8% plus. And then there's a lot more appetite for even flatting or getting to what you said, like a six-ish percent cash on cash, and then hopefully 10% over the term of the entire seven-year hold on 80s, 90s, and newer. Could you split out those two different things that you mentioned, the cash on cash and then the yield on cost? Yeah, the I'm actually looking over here at some of the notes that I've, I've put into, of course, Excel. And I'm trying to think, let's see, we've got one East Coast group here who was specifically talking about 5%. Well, this is 5% day one, eight to nine by year two. Yield on cost, but fundamentally, yield on cost is typically what we talk about when we talk about any sort of heavy value add or development. You there's acquisition costs. And if you buy a stabilized deal, acquisition cost is pretty much the only thing you can you need to consider because you're buying an asset and then just going in to manage it. Uh, but if you're talking about putting large capital infusion into something, whether you're doing some sort of development or you are um, doing a heavy value add, you need to consider the cost of that capital improvement in your yield. And so you can almost think of it from very high level terms as being the acquisition cost plus whatever it's going to cost you to get to where you want to be when determining the yield. 
yeah, that, that yield on cost, it moves in a similar way. People are looking for a similar yield on cost as cash on cash typically. So I know the answer to this, but why do you think that the market is pivoting from the Sunbelt or the smile of the United States into the Midwestern markets? There's been less development and there's less supply. There are individual projects and developments, deals in those Sunbelts that are killing it. But when you look in aggregate, the influx in supply is allowing people to uh, tenants to shop more. And so there's downward pressure because of the supply of units on rents. And so we've seen year-over-year rent growth is actually negative in some places that have been extremely attractive in the last couple of years. But right now, we haven't seen the rents in the Midwest that have justified building as opposed to, for the most part, building as opposed to just buying. If you're looking at buying something that's an 80s vintage in Charlotte for 240 a door, but you can build it for 240 a door, why wouldn't you just build a brand new building? But we haven't seen the rents that can justify that so far in the Midwest. Because of the lower supply that's come online, you're seeing you're seeing already existing assets enjoy the kind of rent growth that we've actually come to expect in that steady eddy five to ten percent, depending on the year, um, which is very predictable in Indy, Columbus, Cincinnati, Louisville. Yeah, Cincinnati quarter over quarter has been six six to eight percent for the past four to eight quarters. Whereas the boom market, say a Phoenix, maybe spikes in rent growth, 15, 20%. But then you also see deep valleys, a deep V, bro, where (laughs) um, you see negative. In fact, before NMHC, we were talking to a developer who is Midwest based, but they're doing a project over in Phoenix. And they're like, I think our deal is going to be fine, but you're starting to see some either cash in refis or developers having to sell basically at whatever their cost is because the rents have changed so much between when they broke ground and started the deal to now where they're at in lease up that it, all their equity has evaporated. And that's, that's a scary thing. And you don't see that in the Midwest. Yeah. It's not an uncommon story that somebody was investing in a deal, a ground up development deal in say Florida or something like that. And then the debt coverage or the debt service is double what they were expecting. The insurance is double what they were expecting and double the amount of units came online. And so they're not achieving the rents that they want. Somebody who's very close to me just had a, a capital call because a MES lender is taking over the deal. And it's, it seems everything, they, they did everything right, but it's like costs got so out of control that even missing their rents by five, 10% is a crushing blow. And when you're performing three caps on these things to begin with, it's just, everything's got to go right or stay right for those to be the home runs. And there are stories of those things being home runs, but we like to always say, and it almost sounds tired when you talk about the Midwest markets being like, just settle for a double man and know that you're going to get a double as opposed to these three true outcomes of baseball nerds out there. I'm going to strike out or hit a home run. I don't know, but I'm going to the bench after this at bat in either way. So what you're saying is there's no reason to go ahead and take your equity over to, to the Sunbelt in the Midwest. Yeah. My professional yeah. opinion is that you should buy in the two hour radius around Cincinnati and nowhere else. <laughs> and call us for details. Yes. Right. <laughs> Um, what was, what were some of the best things? What was the best part of NMHC for each one of you guys? It being my first time, really. I've never been there, got to experience it, got to see what all the hype was about and actually being pleasantly surprised. I was 
a little bit pessimistic going in. I was like, is this going to be really valuable to me? One, am I going to be able to speak to these people in the meetings? And yeah, it was extremely valuable, one. And two, I talked way more than I thought I would. I wasn't just huddled in a corner on my on Stash's iPad taking surveys. I was engaging and I thought the conversations were great and just the energy around the place. I really did think that it would be a little bit more, not lackadaisical, but one just, I don't know, tired some where people are mundane and going through the motions of the day and just rifling through meetings. But I didn't, I really didn't get that at all. And maybe that is just from my excitement of it being my first time and really just being at my first big, I'll say corporate event, but it really doesn't feel corporate. That's my world. Yeah. Yeah. It was just the excitement around it for me. You know, it makes sense. You know, everybody there is, um, they decided to go that route because of their drive. And they could have done something a little more standard or conventional. So yeah, they're excited to be there. On my end, after going year after year from the days that Stash mentioned, when we used to show up at the conference around 7.45 or 8 and just pull a few chairs together, getting together with friends, you see them year after year, you see them throughout the year, either flying to their cities uh, in order to have dinner, catch up, uh, even checking in on how their family. So uh, on my end... I like the opportunity. It's almost like a big family reunion for those you have a great rapport with, just catching up with friends. And yeah. of course, you know, doing deals and making money together is a nice cherry on top. That's right. Yeah. Apart from building out database, being able to have more interpersonal relationships, deepening those things, starting those relationships, obviously those things are the face value of the conference. But for me, I also really appreciate as somebody who likes systems and structure of the concrete and definitive action steps that cut result from this. And it's, I know what I'm going to be working on, or at least follow-ups for the rest, how long it's going to be, but it's going to take a while for me to work through some of the things that I know are follow-ups on this. And so being able to use this as a catalyst to get the year started, where it's maybe you play matchmaker on a couple of things and then they need a deal and then somebody else who needs a deal. And this is just such a good opportunity to roll and compound your pipeline into just knowing what people want, what they need. If I'm going to sell this, I need to trade into something else. And then you just have the conversations going here. And so just knowing what people want, where they want to be all at the same time, there's a lot of opportunity from a broker's perspective then to, to pair people up. And that obviously can set the wheels in motion for what the better part of your year looks like. It's not that your year lives and dies on NMHC, but there's an opportunity there to have this dictate in a very positive way what your 2024 looks like. Yeah, absolutely. I've always had a love-hate relationship with the conference in that it seems like such a slog going in, but once you're there, it's you get to see all your friends, whether they're other brokers in different markets or guys who are on the principal side, or we had some uh, people transition from one company to another. And so you get to see them and run into them, either other brokerage shops or now on the principal side. And it's just like, Hey, how you doing? You give them a hug and catch up with them. 
rib them a little bit. Those are the fun times. And then personally for me, I like to go to all the parties and the social events. <laughs> I had a great time. I'll, I'll fill you in later offline if you want to know. Sushi. Talk about the Lumen party. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Girls on champagne glasses. Phenomenal. Tremendous. Best party by far. But just the people that you run into there as well. You know, you get to see competitors and you get you get to put a face and a name together. And it's, you're actually not that bad of a person, even though we <laughs> compete head to head. I will consent. That's a frustrating <laughs> realization when you're like, damn, that guy. Yeah. Yeah. I, oh man, I like him as a person, but damn it. He's, hate him as a competitor. Yeah. So, if anybody wants to get in touch with you guys, what is the best way to get in touch? Go well, on our website and call us. <laughs> This is when I would say my email address is stash at capstone-companies.com. And my cell phone is 513-417-5588. Give me a call. Does anybody have anything else that you would like to add? I think we pretty much covered it here. That's it. Awesome. Gentlemen, thank you so much and have a great rest of your day. Cool. Enjoy.